Welcome to the Compliance Time AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. In this episode, we spoke with Chris Bentley, the former CEO of Bellatrum Resources, a Texas-based energy fund. This is an episode about fraud and some of the priceless lessons for business owners, innovators, and entrepreneurs. In 2021, Chris let all his clients, employees, and partners know that he had committed fraud and squandered nearly $40 million. He had used the money entrusted to him to prop up his business, an investment management firm that specialized in Texas oil and gas royalties and mineral rights. He wrote a book about this experience, which you will find in the show notes. Now let's hear about the lessons that Chris learned and can compliance function and audit truly help fraud prevention? Hello, Chris, and welcome to Compliance Time. I'm very happy to host our discussion, and I am hoping on um, a lot of positive outcomes for the compliance side and um, for people to learn more from your story. Thanks for having me on uh, your your show, Denise. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's start by introducing yourself and um, your experience, your career path so far. Yeah, my name's Chris Bentley. I um I was in the United States Marines uh, for almost fifteen years. I thought that was going to be my um, entire life career, and I, due to an injury, I, I got medically um, retired and had to change course. So I got into the oil and gas industry in 2014, doing, uh, land acquisitions and investments and, uh, negotiating contracts for land usage for the energy industry and, uh, here in Houston, Texas. And, um, in, uh, late 2015, just a few days before Christmas, I got laid off from my my job. And so I still saw a lot of opportunity. So I got into, I I started my own business in early 2016 and got into investing in oil and gas royalties and um, did very well with that and grew the company from just, you know, myself at the beginning of 2016 to about 21 employees at its height with about uh, 150 or so investors and, uh, and roughly $40 million in um, investor capital uh, between debt and equity, um, you know, by the end. And, you know, I'm not sure how much you've read into the story, but uh, things started to go south in, um, let's say, Q2 of uh, 2019. And, you know, just normal like business challenges. And so in order to try to survive, I started, um, I don't know if you'd call it fraud at that point, but just being um, not transparent and unethical uh, and then started committing fraud in order to survive. And then COVID came in 2020 and just, I kept digging myself in a hole thinking I could you know, get out, um, once COVID passed, but, uh, you know, then eventually it got to the guilt and the, um, kind of the, the lies and the, the duplicity 
got to be such a point where I just went and turned myself in. Nobody knew anything. I wasn't being investigated, but I literally um, called up the Federal Bureau of Investigation via an attorney and um, went and had a meeting with them and explained everything that I had done. So what what happened then? How did they react? What did the FBI said? Um, you know, I, they were surprised. Um, you know, multiple uh, people within the federal government that I've dealt with have said they've never experienced anything like this, where somebody came and turned themselves in um, like this. And so they were surprised. They, they, um, you know, we've had several meetings. I, I turned in computers and things of that nature. And it's been that that was in April of last year of 2021. And um, so far, I still have not been charged with any crime. Um, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that I will be. Um, but to this date, I, I'm still uh, waiting to see what the what's going to happen. And what was your expectation? Like when you were doing that, when you were reporting on yourself, how, what, what did you think would happen next? You know, because I guess many of us, you know, are thinking, oh my God, now when uh, this happens, everything goes down, you know, I'm going to go immediately to jail or things like that, which is not always the case, obviously. So yeah. what, what was your expectation? Yeah, I, I thought I was going to go to jail that day. So I, um, you know, I didn't take anything with me to the meeting. I told my wife that, uh, you know, I, I like took an Uber so that in case I didn't drive there because I thought maybe I would be arrested on the spot. And, um, and that, you know, I, I didn't want my wife to have to go try to figure out how to get my car or my things. So I, I was prepared to go to jail that day. Um, but they just said, Hey, we'll be back in touch with you. And, and, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of, um, a bizarre situation, at least from my perspective, you know, some people tell me, Oh, this is normal. Uh, you know, that they'll two years from now or whatever, like it'll just happen all of a sudden and you'll have somewhat have moved on and, and then it'll come back and, and they'll do it at their own pace. So, um, I don't know, you know, this is a, this is a first for me, hopefully a last and, um, you know, just, I'm, I'm taking it day by day. I'm sure it's really hard. Like I can imagine only the, the stress that you're under, but, but, um, I think you did the right thing there and I'm really hoping that this will bring, um, some goodwill into your case, you know, so it would really, I hope help and the government will take into consideration. Um, but to, to come back to the company that you had, can you please explain with just a few more details what it did and yeah. um, uh, what you did with the investors, like just so we, we can have more information about that? Absolutely. So oil and gas royalties are much like uh, real estate with with rental income if you had to make an analogy that um, people could understand. So when in the United States, when um, oil companies or, you know, oil and gas companies take oil and gas out of the ground, it, it, it um, 
those natural resources belong to the landowner. And uh, that's different from most other countries in the world. So um, the landowner gets a percentage of the royalty of the oil and gas royalties, right? So what we would do is go look for landowners that owned oil and gas properties, you know, that had oil and gas royalties being paid, and we would buy them and collect the, you know, the royalty income, which would be kind of similar to going and buying a bunch of apartments and collecting the rent every month as an investment um, type situation, right? Well, um, we did very well with that, uh, you know, and we would use the investor's money to go buy those properties. And then we would share in the profits. We'd, you know, we'd distribute the the profits to the investors. We would bundle those properties up and then flip them, uh, you know, sell them for, for a higher price after we had acquired them. And while we own them, we would collect the royalty income. And so when things started going down in 2019, um, this isn't your typical fraud where um, I was benefiting myself, like to, you know, drive nice cars and, and buy nice things or take exotic vacations. I was um, doing fraudulent transactions so that I could pull the money and fund my payroll for my employees and the rent of the office and, and things like that. Um, so I could just keep the business open and uh, pay for, you know, the various costs of doing business. And so, and I, and I thought, okay, if I just do this, you know, I can do this one time by myself some time. And then when I get, when I make the money uh, back, I'll just pay back the fund and nobody will ever know because, you know, they didn't, I did the, the reporting in the books in a way that nobody could know that what I did. And, um, and that day never came, you know, I, I, I kept doing it and doing it and digging in a hole. And then, um, you know, I, I just thought, okay, I just need to hit one big uh, deal, you know, just get one, if I can just make one huge profit deal, then, then all this will, I'll make everybody whole and everything will go away and nobody will know anything and we'll start over fresh and, you know, I'll never do this again. Um, but like I said, it just got to be too much too long of a period of living with uh, a lie, you know, and, and doing this um, fraudulent activity just began to bear down on me to the point where yeah, I was just extremely suicidal, drinking way too much, um, you know, just in a, in a very dark place. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I just went and thought the best thing, you know, I, I know I lost a lot of investors money, um, in the process. Um, uh, and, and I'm very sorry for that. Uh, so okay. I, I, you know, I know I deserve some punishment. I, I wish it would come so that we could all get on a path toward, uh, restitution and redemption because it's, uh, you know, kind of in this limbo period right now where it's very difficult to do anything to, to, uh, make any substantial um, contribution toward uh, paying the investors back. So that's why I wrote the book. I'm not sure if you're aware of the book that I wrote and I published 
on Amazon, but um, that is an attempt to pay the investors back. So I, I wrote a book about the story and some of the lessons learned. Yeah, I'll include the link into the show notes so people can take a look on the book and actually uh, dig into the story. And hopefully that would help also for uh, your cause in returning the funds. I totally understand that um, this feeling when when you feel that you owe someone, you know, um, and it doesn't give you really the peace of mind. Um, at night and not only during the day you're preoccupied with that um i was wondering in the type of organization that you had um did you have a compliance officer or was it only with some kind of accountants did you have an employee who is somehow responsible for the um compliance within the organization so somewhat, it's not like a big corporation, like you would think where there's compliance officers and whatnot, but what we did have were audits of, right? So there was an external third-party auditor. There was also a third-party administrator, and then I had my internal accountant, but the way I was able to deceive everybody, and this this will probably be valuable for your audience, and and I go into more detail in the book about you know uh, exactly how to do it and how to how to like maybe structure things to to avoid this from happening, right? But um, I created silos, and and it was very easy for. Um, me to report one thing to want to because they were all external right and then my internal guy didn't know about the some of the external entities and agencies I was using and so I was able to create these silos if you understand what I'm saying where this person was only had access to this and I and I used the system you know, to my advantage, if you will, about like how to keep everybody in the dark from each other and from me so that I was giving everybody everything that they thought they needed. It was within, you know, everything as it pertained to the people I was dealing with looked to be above board. And so I took the time to, um, you know, to to make sure everybody was getting the reporting they needed. Um, and I was able to do it in a way where those external people never found the need to communicate with each other. And that's very normal. And if you do research into the corporate world and whatever, if you ever look at like, if you're giving an auditor all the paperwork they ask for, very rarely are they going to go and then talk to another agency that's a completely different third-party company or like if everything looks good then mm-hmm. very rarely are questions asked right so I took a gamble knowing that hey if I made sure the auditor the paperwork that the auditor received they would be completely happy and never go talk to my internal folks to match up the paperwork. So in many cases, I was giving two or three sets of paperwork that was quote unquote, the same paperwork, but it looked different. So for example, my, my internal accountants statements 
that I would give him to look at would look different than the third party administrator and the, and the third party auditor. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Um, is there something that you wish you knew at the time when you were doing the statements that would have helped you not do it? You know, uh, if there was some kind of, you know, information from law enforcement or if you have heard about a similar case of someone in doing that. Well, and- you, you know, um, I've thought a lot about this, Denisa, and um, one thing that I think would have helped me is knowing that uh failure is okay right um investments do go bad and it's okay to lose money as long as it's not fraudulently right so my fear my fear as a as a young new you know entrepreneur and fund manager was that i i could not fail it would be the end of me and my business and my employees, you know, I, I would have, I just felt a, a, an extreme responsibility not to fail and to lose money. I mean, a lot of my investors were people who I knew personally, who I went to school with or um, were friends of mine, family members, etc. cetera. And um, I thought that what I was doing was in their best interest and that my my goal was the preservation of their capital and and also my employees jobs and livelihood and so you know i think having a more um well-known playbook or manual if you will on how to handle failure and investment failure so to speak so like hey it's okay, you know, it, it's okay to lose money. Not that that de- definitely shouldn't be. Uh, we shouldn't be nonchalant about it, right? Nobody wants to lose money, but things bad things do happen. Uh, circumstances change in the market, and um, I think having a a a step by step guide on how to handle. Okay, we've got some losses. Here are some ways to handle it. Um, may have been helpful. You know, I, I, who, who knows, had I had those things at my disposal, would I still have um, made the decisions I made? I, you know, I don't know. I'd like to think that I wouldn't have, but um, you know, I think we live in such a world where, where failure is, is um, can sometimes be viewed as, as final. Right. And yeah. uh, even though people say, Oh, failure is not final. It's just an event. I think a lot of people don't really buy into that both, both for themselves and for others. Like we're, we tend to be unforgiving of both ourselves and others when it comes to failure. So. That's so true. Yeah. The the fear of failure and uh, how others may look at you is a huge problem. And, um, from where do you think this message should come? Do you think this should be an effort of creating such a manual or, I don't know, a document, a book, a rule book? Um, should it come maybe from the government and institutions uh, um, responsible for enforcement? Or should it be from the practitioners, from the people in the field, from the people that actually have experienced any kind of failure? What do you think would reach the audience best 
so Denise, I think it has to be all of the above. I think, um, you know, I typically am of the mind that the government is not that good at doing anything. And, and I don't mean that in a mean way, it's just very bureaucratic and very like just inefficient. Right. I mean, there's, they've got so many responsibilities because they try to be all things to all people. And then many of the services that, that they are responsible for end up being sub standard because of, you know, that is it, you know, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent about that, but I think you get my point, but it is the reality. And so therefore now they do have the responsibility to, if they're going to create all these regulations and, and rules around money and investments and business, then there should be also, Hey, we understand that business can be challenging at times. And here are some of the cases we've seen in the past. And here's how we advise you to handle it if you ever find yourself in this situation. And then that way, you know, we're we're continuously improving, but also creating a culture where um, people know how to deal with failure in a way that is legal and compliant and and allows them the opportunity to recover from that failure and still be productive members of society rather than, um, you know, putting a, a, the final nail in their coffin, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. Culture is something really important when it comes, not only organizations, but, you know, the society in general and the culture of um, being compliant, being, um, uh, transparent, uh, accepting failure and learning from it. This is really, really important. As I said, not only for organizations, but for people in general. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I really hope uh, someone is taking good notes into writing such information and making it public uh, for for the benefit of uh, people around the world, because I'm sure that this is not a uniquely uh, U.S. problem, misappropriation of uh, uh, fund investor funds, or uh, you know, using them for different reasons. Because you were uh, using them to trying to keep your company afloat, but I'm sure that there are others uh, who are using them to benefit themselves. Um, so. Um, it will be it will be better if uh, people know how to handle this better do you have maybe any advice to entrepreneurs and business owners um something that they can do to not enter in such pitfalls that come with the responsibility of managing business yeah i mean i could uh, i could go on for a while and i and i talk about this in my book but um you know, I think first and foremost is, and and we say this all the time, right? People say, you know, never lie, cheat or steal or, or, um, you know, never uh, lose your integrity, no matter what. And sometimes, you know, that can be way easier said than done, especially when you think your heart is in the right place, right? Like, um, to, to simplify the analogy, if, uh, if you get pulled over for speeding, but the reason you were speeding was to 
um, hurry up and, and get to work on time, you know, or some, you know, there, there's, there's sometimes you can do bad things to, because you're trying to accomplish something good. Right. But at the end of the day, um, there are laws in place and, and, you know, and, and if you want to be, uh, you know, a compliant citizen and operate within those laws and, and not pay the consequences, then you have to do the right thing. And so I think putting in structures, especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur like myself, you have to, if you operate in an area where there's not a lot of guidance or oversight or, um, information from the government, as in was my situation and kind of about your previous question, then you have to create those rules for yourself. And there are lessons out there if you look for them. And now, you know, my advice because of the the lessons I learned the hard way would be to a new manager, a new entrepreneur, if you're out there raising other people's money to use for an investment or a business, um, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're in a risky game and that's okay. Risk, risk is a part of business, but now you need to understand those risks and how you need to put in place mechanisms for failure, because not that you're going to live your life constantly in fear of failure, but if you do find yourself in deep water and uh, you immediately know where to go, you go to the playbook, you don't have to think about it. It's in your operating documents. Your investors know, Hey, if this is that way, there's no question, right? Like if failure comes and as long as you follow the agreed upon playbook and the agreement and the contract, and you say, Hey, if we fail, this is how I have to handle it. Then then you you might have some people mad at you because you lost their money, but they'll never be able to say you lied or you cheated or you did anything wrong because you followed the playbook. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think your advice would really make sense for the new cryptocurrency and blockchain environment. We can see that um, what happened is investors, they know they're taking risks, but sometimes they don't know how much risk they're taking. And they don't think about the consequences if something fails, because anything can fail in our world in general. You know, um, nothing is uh, fully bulletproof. So, um, and we know that the cryptocurrency space is deregulated, is decentralized. So there is no government involvement. Nobody can really protect you. So from where this can come is only from the entrepreneurs, creators of those projects and things like that, um, who can really say what happens when something fails. Do you think this lesson and what you just said about creating the rule book is applicable to the cryptocurrency space? I Absolutely. So um, the problem with, like, as I was alluding to earlier with the government is, is they're so reactive, right? And, 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 um, that again, that's not a knock on them. I think it's just a symptom of the way the again, the bureaucracy and the, you know, they, they don't know about something until somebody's called the police or the investigators and said, Hey, I, I got, I got my money stolen by a crypto investor or whatever. I, I think most, um, I think most people I would like to believe are mostly good. 
and have good intentions. And so if somebody's out there trying to raise money to invest in, in cryptocurrencies or even, you know, another one that comes up is, is Forex, you know, foreign exchange currencies and um, other alternative investments, they may really have uh, a good, you know, good intentions and, but, but it's such a new space that there's risk involved. Right. And so in the absence of government um, guidance on the, on how to handle failure and what's, what is compliant and, and how to operate within regulations, right. If there's an absence of regulations and rules regarding a certain space, then the investor and the entrepreneur, the fund manager have to be extra thorough in defining these things. And so where I think um, the government could help without uh, getting into all the nuances of a particular asset class or industry or investment space, what they could do is create a, a kind of skeleton document or format and say, hey, here's the questions you need to ask about each business or asset class or investment opportunity. And here are the... Um, Here's a kind of example format of an investment contract or private placement memorandum that you can use as a starting point. And one of those sections in that format or skeleton document, if you will, should be how to handle failure and loss, right? The reporting, the reporting requirements are huge. How do you report the losses? How soon? what are the required um, oversight and, and what are the required communications between various third parties? So, you know, having a third party doesn't always mean you're safe, right? As I mentioned earlier, if I'm sending false reporting to one third party and sending false reporting to another third party, but those two third parties never talk to each other, then they'll never know that I was sending false information to both until they reconcile their reporting to each other. Right. And so I think, I think there are solutions. I think we have to be self-governing, but where the government could help is to give us the, like I said, the format and the, and the kind of sample contracts and reporting requirements um, to, to help, you know, to help guide us in, in how to better manage things, especially in spaces where something's new and not well-defined, right? Like you can, there's securities, there's robust securities regulations for trading, you know, publicly traded stocks, right? There's plenty of information on there about that. But when you get into new asset classes like crypto, um, then, the best they can do is at least provide reporting requirements and um, sample investment contracts and structures for how to go out and raise money, you know, properly. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you about the third parties that um, we have seen recently that obviously it's not efficient to have uh, auditing external auditing, as you said, how it's done uh, from your experience, as we saw with cases like uh, Wirecard and other recent where um, third-party auditors are just 
missing <laughs> missing the point uh, big time. Um, so yeah, obviously there there should be something else done. And um, what what's your opinion and your role in the compliance profession? What do you think people working in compliance fraud prevention? What can they do better? Well, you know, I don't want to presume I've never, I've never worked closely with people in that profession beyond sending them the documents that they requested. Right. So when, when I, I didn't see what their work entails and I do not know what, um, I guess legal standards govern their work. Right. But what I would say is, um, I feel like based on my experience, as long as my paperwork looked good, then, then that's all I had to do is make sure my paperwork looked good. And, and given, um, given the, I, I had time to doctor my paperwork, if that makes sense, I could come in mm-hmm. on the I could come in on the weekends or stay late at work and, and do the bad things that I did, you know, with Adobe editor and, um, you know, uh, tracing with, a you know, signatures with, a you know, in my office with the door locked and things like that. So, um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to make sure all the documentation looked good. And I think, if you put some serious time constraints on the reporting, it'll force errors that then um, are noticeable, right? So even in present day structure, like even with, let's say nothing changed with what the reporting requirements I had at my business, if the only thing they changed was like a very, very short window, let's say uh, a couple of hours after a transaction goes through, it would have been impossible for me to, I, I shouldn't say impossible, but it would have been damn near impossible for me to do what I did if I had to give documents to three different people within two hours of closing a transaction because the the amount of effort and time I had to put to make sure those documents that were three different good looking documents to three different people were, it took me a lot of time. And so often I would wait till the weekend and say, Oh, I'll get, I'm busy right now. I'm in meetings. I'll get you the documents when I have time to catch up on my emails this weekend or whatever. Right. Like I would, I would always buy time and then I'd go send the documents and, and look, it was believable because I truly was busy. I was in meetings and I was the CEO of a small company. So my employees didn't have the authority to do what I did. But if you force such uh, strenuous uh, com- reporting compliance, then um, that would have at the minimum, that one change would have forced me to make errors or not, or, or maybe hey, there's just no way for me to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say, hey, the business is failing. But think about those time constraints coupled with a, a culture of, hey, failure is okay, and here's how you do it, right? In, in case of emergency, here are the steps to follow. So you've got those reporting requirements, and then you've got 
the, the, Hey, here's, here's how to fail. And everybody understands that investments can fail and here's what you need to do. So then you say, okay, here, I'm reporting this loss and I'm going to go notify my investors in this manner. Here are the things that I, I cover and here's, um, what I say. Right. And, and so a lot of that, I, I think a lot of future frauds could be mitigated if, if we put those two things in place. Um, it, you know, we'll never have a perfect world uh, for sure. There's always going to be nefarious people out there trying to legitimate or not legitimately, but you, they're, they're literally going to try to steal your money and get one over on you. And there'll, there'll always be those types of people out there, unfortunately. But I think for, you know, you probably talk about the fraud fraud triangle um, sometimes in your in your circle, and you know many frauds happen because of uh, a perceived pressure, and then uh, the opportunity and the capability to do it. Right? It's not always about uh, benefiting yourself monetarily, and um, and so I think um, kind of again, it goes back to the culture and how we perceive failure. And, um, you know, I, I think a big lesson for me, the, the positive side for me and for the, my family and how I raise my kids is that that lesson has been driven home. You know, I, I raise my two sons now to know that, Hey, failure is okay. And it's how you fail. Not if you fail, we're all going to fail at some point at something in our life, whatever that is. And it's how you handle it that matters. And, um, so, you know, I can say that, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'll never violate my integrity to hide a failure ever again in my life, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, that's pretty great. Another thing that I was uh, thinking while you were uh, talking about compliance is that how important is communication from the compliance side on what they do? Because uh, initially you also said that um, you're not sure how um, uh, under what regulations they're working and they were just expecting and re requesting the uh, paperwork without, you know, they can give you some background, they can give you some information about why is that. And I think one of the things that we are missing in the compliance field is more open communication about exactly that, because Personally, I don't know also all the laws and rules that um, govern all kinds of uh, businesses and the aspects of life in general. I mean, you have to really think of a certain situation and then you have to check certain things, right? So I think one of the roles of uh, compliance should be in communicating and really um, simplifying and telling us what and how uh, something should be done and most important why what are the consequences if you don't do that what uh what will happen or is this a violation and if it's a violation what's the repercussion because if you knew better maybe what would happen and what would be the consequences um in case of you know forging documents or submitting uh, um, different papers to different uh, parties, then maybe you would also reconsider it at, at some point, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, everybody's different on how they perceive risk and, and that's all kinds of risks, not just financial risk, but, you know, risk to your freedom and risk to, um, your reputation or, or whatever. Right. So that, that there, those things then ultimately go down to the individual deciding to make the choice. But, um, the, like what you said, I think uh, from the compliance side, um, at least knowing, uh, you know, yes, it like what they have, um, to do and, and, you know, and why would be helpful. But I think, you know, in my case that me knowing, I didn't know how they worked and what their requirements were, like what, what burdens of proof they had to show, but all I knew is what they told me, right? Like, Hey, uh, we're going to do an audit and we're going to need this, this, and this paperwork. And you know, and this is what we look for, I guess that, you know, I knew that much, but I didn't know like what, what is there, for example, like the auditor, if they, are they required to go and look at, like get a, a, I don't know, some sort of professional who can tell if a f- signature has been forged or not. I, I mean, I don't know. I took that risk, right? I, I, I had no mm-hmm. idea what they're supposed to do, but maybe not, maybe not so much me knowing what, because that would, that would have helped me, I guess, game the system, right? If I knew more about the auditors, but I do think um, maybe the auditor's level of compliance. And I'm just guessing here again, and this isn't on the auditor. If people are doing their jobs, they're doing their jobs, they're doing what's expected of them, but maybe what's expected of them needs to be more, right? Maybe it's like, Hey, when you do an audit, not only do you just make sure the numbers match up and the documentation looks okay, but maybe it needs further verification. Like maybe random stuff that nobody can predict, right? Like you send this document. If, if a document has three signatures on it, maybe you need to send it to all three people and say, Hey, did you really sign this? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. cause I would have been found out that way as well. If, if an, if an auditor or, a, you know, somebody charged with um, kind of overseeing things, if they, went and had to like ask and verify uh, if everybody's signature on that particular document, if they actually signed it, then I would have been found out very early. Um, But I also get that this is, you know, we don't want to make business hard. Like just because I, you know, I screwed up and did bad bad things. We don't want to make it's so uh, onerous on other business owners that they can't do their business because you know what I'm saying? So there's gotta be a balance out there. Uh, There, there is, I know there's a way, I think some of the new blockchain technologies for signatures and, and things like that allow for uh, immediate and, and very fast authentication. And so maybe those, there's some technological solutions out there. Um, as I said earlier, you know, there's always going to be, there's no perfect scenario. There's going to be people who figure out how to do wrong and how to, how to game the system. But I I think 
I think there is a way to make a massive improvement on preventing fraud and, and uh, ensuring a, a higher level of compliance. Yes, there, there. I also believe that there is a lot of potential in technology as well as blockchain to really um, deter fraud um, whenever possible uh, and to reduce really the numbers. Because our time is coming to an end. Uh, just if you have one top key takeaway that you would like to share with anyone who's listening, what would you advise people? You know, um, so. So Denitza, if you, if you will forgive me, I'm going to do two because I think your audience is primarily compliance professionals, right? People who are in the industry. So my first and foremost lesson for everybody, right, is in the key takeaway, which we already talked about would be that failure is an option and you can fail. So for me to make, to, to kind of bring the story to relevance for me, it would have been in early 2019 to say, Hey, investors, employees, anybody who's, who's, uh, has a, as a stake in this business, I want you to know things are not working as they have in the past. We're losing money and we need to take steps to minimize the losses. And if that involves shutting down the business and returning whatever assets and capital are left, let's do it. But being able to stand up and know that failure is okay. It's not the end of you. It may be painful. It may, um, it may get some people mad at you because of financial losses, but it's not final and, and it's okay. It's not illegal to fail. It's not uh, immoral to fail. And it's not uh, a knock on your character. And um, I think that's the biggest takeaway. Now, for the compliance professionals in here, I think maybe um, understanding that many of the people that you are um, let's say auditing or reviewing or, or uh, trying to ensure compliance uh, for or with that their, their pressures and the things that they're doing are much different from yours and everybody's important. So not to look at them as an enemy, but also to embrace them as, okay, uh, I'm, I'm looking for compliance because it's my job, but I want you to know that it's okay to fail and that um, I'm going to help you be compliant. And if you need to fail, I can help you fail compliantly, you know, if that makes sense. So um, yeah. that I think that would be a more collaborative approach. And I think oftentimes in organizations and in life, we look at people who are trying to regulate us or, or verify or fact check us or whatever as, as an adversary or an enemy and there may be a more collaborative way to do business together going forward, you know? Yeah, that's true. Innocent till proven guilty, right? Um, I do think that the uh, approach of uh, some of the compliance folks is really like uh, going against an enemy when they're vetting a client, for example. So um, that's a fantastic advice. And of course, uh, accepting failure is something I also really stand behind. And Chris, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us on compliance time. Um, it was really a pleasure. I'm going to again include the book that um, you mentioned into the 
show notes and any other relevant links that you have um, will be there as well. All right. Thanks, Denise. I really enjoyed the conversation. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you like this episode, remember to give us a five-star review on your platform. You can also support our work on Buy Me A Coffee. Don't forget to subscribe on our website for the monthly newsletter and check out our blog. Bye-bye.